Hey, everyone, and welcome to episode 265 of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is Healing Fashionably, an interview with Miranda Holder. My name is Richard Johannesson. And I'm Matt Sabatello. Folks, this is a really powerful interview with a woman who's now become known as the feel-good fashion coach. She taught us many really powerful things during the course of this podcast, including the importance of getting through the grief cycle as quickly as you can, the importance of social detoxing if you're going to heal, the problems associated with immune disruption and how immune disruption is in many cases the trigger for a chronic Lyme disease journey. And she also talked to us the, about how she ultimately had to decide to take control of her life, to take control of her career, and ultimately take control of her health before she could go on a healing journey. Folks, without further ado, I'm really excited to introduce to you the Feel Good Fashion Coach, Miranda Holder. Hello, Miranda Holder, the Feel Good Fashion Coach, and welcome to the Tick Bootcamp Podcast. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be here. Well, we're really excited to have you here, and we thank you for taking some time out of your really busy life to share your journey with our community. And, and just to give folks a context uh, for folks who are, may not be aware of who you are, talk to us about what you did this week. I was on Instagram, and I saw that you had a really crazy week, and I was hoping that you had just a little energy left to uh, share this journey with the folks. So give us a, a context for what your week was like last week, Miranda. My week, my goodness, what a week. Well, no week is ever the same, but last week consisted of several television appearances. I, I go on TV here in England and coach the nation about how to feel fabulous in the clothes they wear. So we did a little bit of that. I also wrote several articles for the national papers and magazines here on various things from the fashion of Bridgerton, which is a series on Netflix that take, is taking the world by storm right now. I am familiar the with it, especially my are. daughters are loving the show. I just actually watched the first episode myself last week. It is oh. actually very well done. It's beautiful. It's sumptuous. So there was so much to write about. And then OK Magazine about decluttering your wardrobe and many, many more. I do a lot of uh, writing for the national press here and sort of commentary on fashion and what's going on in the world. And, uh, and then what else? Oh, working with a few brands, a little bit of celebrity styling. So just an average day, a week in the life of really. <laughs> yeah. So so let's let's build this out, this context out a little bit more. So um, I did introduce you as a feel good fashion coach and uh, you are a regular on QVC uh, mm -hmm. and you've worked with uh, a number of major uh, stars that we would be familiar with here in the US. Um, as an older guy, I'm certainly familiar with uh, Boy George in yes. the Culture Club, but Vanessa Williams, one of my favorite actresses. Um, uh, you, you've worked with Little Max. I mean, you've worked with some of the, you know, some of the biggest stars in the world. So talk to us about what that's been like for you. It's, an, it's a privilege and it's an amazing insight into the magical world of showbiz and specifically music. Um, and I actually used to be an actress. I started out life in a career training to be an actor, always wanted to be on the stage. So now I get to be part of that and sort of make the magic happen, but from a slightly different angle. And I absolutely love it. It's really fantastic being part of that creative process to bring the whole vision to life. And uh, I feel truly blessed to be able to do it. So let's talk about your background. Uh, long before you became a mom and a wife, uh, you, you had, a, had a start um, in England. So talk to us about what your childhood was like and your educational experience. Okay, well, I grew up in a little sleepy village called Frampton on Severn, which was uh, in the southern Cotswolds in Gloucestershire. So very rural, very idyllic. 
and spent many a long summer's day because for some reason the summers seemed to be way better back then. I don't know if that's my memory or that was the fact. Um, Playing with the cows in the fields and going for long walks and riding horses and just being very, very outdoorsy. Um, And I had always loved London, though. I'd always set my sights on London as the big city and the bright light. So, you know, typical grass is always greener situation. As soon as I could, I left the sticks, left the country life and moved to London to study my passion, which was actually acting. Um, and that was that I did. In fact, I, before I went to drama school, I went to Canada for a year and in fact worked as a drama teacher at a private school out there on Vancouver Island and then traveled around Canada and then down the West coast of the States too, and had the best time. So I consider that also part of my education. <laughs> okay, so let's let's talk about the education that you had both uh, in the UK, um, here in North America, both in Canada and uh, on the west coast of uh, of the US. Um, now you had a rural childhood, right? You spent you said uh, a lot of time with cows and and other types of uh, rural experiences. Did you know anything about ticks and tick diseases during your childhood? Meaning, was was it a part of either your cultural experience or part of your uh, formal educational experience where you taught how to keep yourself from uh, getting sick from coming in contact with ticks or uh, or or any of the, those types of vectors? Absolutely not. Not a clue. I was carefree, footloose, fancy free, and I may well have been bitten. Um, I mean, I certainly had spider bites and mosquito bites, and and we don't know for sure that that doesn't carry the Lyme disease anyway. So who knows? Um, But no, not a clue. Um, And even actually when I came over to live on Vancouver Island, um, I was not really aware. There was probably some sort of background knowledge. I've always had animals and pets, so cats and dogs. And of course, part of looking after them is making sure they don't have any ticks or fleas. Um, So I would be aware of them in that capacity. But certainly the connection with Lyme and, and ticks had not been made. So when you were living either on Vancouver Island or uh, you came and spent some time on the West Coast in the U.S., um, were you aware of the importance of checking yourself for ticks? And did you do anything to check yourself for ticks? Or was it just something you were generally aware of uh, with regard to your companion animals? Yeah, exactly that. It was about the animals rather than myself. Obviously, if I'd found one on me, I I probably would have been slightly alarmed, but it, it never happened as far as I was aware. Right. So were you taking steps to keep your companion animals free from ticks? Meaning, were you putting any types of sprays on them? Were you putting any collars on them? or And were you physically checking them? Or were you just, just generally aware of it? No, all of the above. We would regularly have routines and deflea them and flea collars and whatever was going, various methods. So we would regularly check that they were safe. So now talk to us about how your career developed. You went from, from your educational experience in London, you came to the US or you, actually North America, you came to Canada, you were a teacher in Canada. How did your career develop from there? Oh, well, I have very, very fond memories, actually, of living on Vancouver Island, such a gorgeous part of the world, all the islands, just being on the on the side of the Pacific there, all the whale watching the dolphins. It was incredible. But uh, back to reality and off to drama school and then following three years uh, studying acting, I got a degree in acting. I went and tried out the stage and, and trod the boards myself and had 
uh, a sort of mediocre career. I'm going to be completely honest. I loved doing it. I wasn't really up for all the rejection and the continual cycle of auditions and having to be somewhere at last minute notice. And I, I started to want the money rather than live on an absolute shoestring that uh, that that was uh, sort of affording me at the time. So my father stepped in with an opportunity that I I I'm going to step just take that again. Hang on, I'm just uh, stumbling. Hang on a moment. <clears throat> So my father stepped in with an opportunity at a weak moment and suggested that I went to be a recruitment consultant because he had some contacts, which was very, very well paid. I think he was probably fed up of supporting me as a you know starving actress in my little garret somewhere. Um, and actually, I did that for several years and made some very good money and managed to just sort of even things out, if you like. But I was always yearning for something creative. Um, so fast forward a little bit, I met my husband and we moved my now husband, Justin, and we moved out of London and back into the countryside down to Hampshire, where I live now. And um, we ha- very quickly had children. That was all lovely. You know, a very typical family. We had a, a Labrador, black Labrador, which is a bit of a cliche around here. A couple of cats and an Audi. That's that's basically what everyone else has as well. But we were very happy. <laughs> and um, the children were quite young at the time. They were two and four, I believe. And we had been a- away for a weekend, my husband and I, just the two of us. And we were driving home um, and we had a very nasty car accident which happened actually before my career now, but actually it's, it's quite an important part of the story. So if we're doing it in chronological order, I'll bring this up right now. I was, yeah, thanks. So I was sitting in the passenger seat of the car and my legs were crossed on the dashboard in front of me and my husband was driving. And I know now just how dangerous that is, but I had, I had no idea at the time. It was a long, you know, a long drive and it was more comfortable. I was snoozing and it was that half light and the van in front of us, the brake lights weren't working and it, it broke. They put the brakes on really suddenly. We went in the back of it only at about 40 miles an hour. Nothing dramatic. However, it was enough. You're nodding away. I think you know what I'm talking about here. It set off the airbags, which go off at something like 200 and something miles an hour. I mean, they're incredibly fast, which sent my crossed legs into the windscreen, which of course didn't shatter because it's safety glass. So instead my legs did. Um, cue a whole a whole episode of my life, which was actually I'm quite grateful for now because I've learned a huge amount from it and I've really grown as a result of the experience. But at the time it was incredibly traumatic. And there was a catalogue of errors really with the hospital. We had a lot of bad luck really is one way of looking at it in terms of the way it was handled. Um, But my feet were smashed and dislocated and nerves were severed and tethered um, and they were a real mess, but it wasn't apparent. So it took actually, it took actually about eight months for the whole thing to be properly, properly diagnosed in which time I was well for in hospital for weeks and in a wheelchair, but in excruciating pain because no one was able to pinpoint this nerve pain that I was suffering and, and the fact that the nerves were so badly compromised. So I became addicted to all sorts of painkillers. Um, I was an expert in wheelies in my wheelchair, you know, when you go up on the back two wheels and could do all the tricks because I was living in it. And I was swigging Auramorph, so the, the liquid morphine from a bottle, um, just sort of blacking out the, the world really. 
um, you know, I got through it w- with the help of the morphine, but actually it was obviously a really bad time. Um, I sort of turned my back on my kids. I couldn't cope with them being around me because um, my head was so jangled from all this nerve medication that I was taking and they were putting me on, I was assigned to a pain team and they were doing all these kinds of concoctions trying to get me out of the pain, but actually it was just this lethal combination, you know, of of stronger and stronger chemicals that weren't doing me any favors. So I really was not able to mother my children for about six months. And I have to say my daughter now, yeah, thank you. You know what? I, that still hurts talking about that because, um, well, what mother doesn't want, you know, would be happy with turning her back on her young children. And my daughter was youngest and she had separation anxiety after that. She still does, actually. So she's still traumatized from that. But we're, but we're very, very close. So it's all OK. So, Miranda, I appreciate you sharing with us what Dr. Rawls, Bill Rawls, the author of Unlock, Unlocking Lyme, would call it an immune disrupting event. It's very common on this podcast where we interview someone, they, they are, they're, they're harboring Lyme disease, their body is managing it, they have an immune disrupting event, and then they become sick. So let's talk about your health before the accident, and then we're going to talk about how the immune disrupting event changed. So did you have any signs? Um, any, any uh, signals from your body that suggested that you were harboring Lyme disease now that you're looking back at that window of your life? Yes, I did. But it's only been obviously retrospectively that I've, I've worked that out. So my signs were I was always just I was always struggling with my energy. I was always tired. I was young, but I would get tired far quicker than anyone else. Um, I just didn't feel like I had a huge amount of stamina. I just felt quite weak and very sensitive to things. Um, So, you know, if I drink alcohol or or whatever it might be, my system just didn't ever process it that well. I was very sensitive to coffee, anything like that. And then I had skin issues, very, very dry skin. I had histamine issues. I didn't realize what histamine issues. Um, so there were plenty of signs there, but you just get on with it. I was a, I was basically a teenager and a, a young lady out in London for the, her early 20s, and I just made it work. So, Maren, did you see any doctors during that window of your life where you were outlining some of these concerns that you just outlined for us, meaning your fatigue issues or your skin issues? Uh, and were there any doctors who were connecting the dots for you so that you can get to a place where um, you could have protected your body from uh, suffering a chronic illness? Absolutely not in terms of any advice or connecting the dots. dots. I did see a doctor about my histamine and there wasn't really anything that was offered as a solution. I was just told that I had extra histamine, which wasn't overly helpful. Um, And I'm just thinking sort of slightly later on because the traumatic event, as you say, that triggered the Lyme wasn't until my early 30s. Um, And I've had a lot of spinal issues as well. So I'm sort of hypermobile. Um, and I, I mean, I kind of joke, but it's kind of true that I sneeze and my ribs pop out of line just, just slightly, but I'm always at the chiropractor or whatever. And my muscles are super unhappy. So I was having all sorts of back and joint issues all the way through my twenties, um, which I did seek help with for sort of osteopaths and people like that. But again, no one mentioned that it, it could have been related to Lyme, but of course we now know that, that it is, it's part of the picture. So Matt, Matt is going to talk with you. Matt is going to talk to you about that later on in the podcast because that's certainly something we noted from the research that we have done on you. But um, let's 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 focus a little bit more now moving forward. So you have this immune disrupting event. 
you have this long experience where you're, you're first having some challenges with getting diagnosed with the injuries that you suffered in the automobile accident. And then you finally get to the other side of that experience. And now everything changes for you, right? You, you now have this, um, you now have a series of health issues that you're, you're dealing with. And of course, it was hard for your medical professionals, I guess, for you to tease out which of these were related to the auto accident and which are not. And then, of course, you're also going through a transformation professionally as well. So talk to us about those two paths that developed yes. after your immune disrupting event and the auto accident. Well, there was, you're right. There was a lot going on, I have to say, at that time. And I, I remember the catalyst, I guess, for me was um, throughout my recovery. And I spent so many months in bed. My friends would visit me and they'd always bring fashion magazines because it's it's well known with all my all my girlfriends and all my friends that I've always loved fashion and loved dressing up. If anyone needed a makeover or their makeup done, they'd come to me and, you know, we'd have so much fun. So it had always been my other longstanding passion besides acting. And um, I spent many a time in bed sort of daydreaming about all these fabulous outfits and what I might do if I worked in that world. And then one moment I remember I, I got up to use the loop. I had a, a, um, an ensuite bathroom and it took me probably half an hour to get out of bed and use all the mobility equipment and wheel myself into the bathroom and, you know, a lot of effort. And I'd have been avoiding the mirror uh, quite deliberately for some time. And for whatever reason, I decided to just take a little look at myself at that time. And I looked into these bloodshot eyes at this huge, pale, bloated face with a bird's nest on her head for hair um, and withered limbs and just thought, oh, my goodness, you are a ghost. You know, what are you doing? And it was at that moment that actually I'm so glad I did look in the mirror because I, ca I came to my senses and it was like, hang on a minute, you can choose to be a victim. And that I was very much in victim mentality up until that point. I was angry. I was frustrated. I was blaming everybody. Um, I hated the NHS over here. I was holding all the medics responsible for in their mistakes. They were offering me an amputation, actually a limb am amputation as a solution, which I was very anti. Thank goodness I didn't go for it because I'm now walking normally. Um, but all these things were going on. Um, and I just at that moment said to myself, no, hang on a minute, you can do this. And if you get better, I sort of made a promise to myself that I would stop kind of not wasting my life, but stop dithering and actually for once go for my dreams when the children were ready and attempt one last time to have the career of my dreams, which was actually fashion. Um, and the short story after that is that I managed to do it and got into fashion and actually hilariously I think I was for once in the right place at the right time because I'd always been pushing with the acting and it was like, no, come on. I know I'm really good. Someone give me a chance. But once I was well enough to give the fashion a go, opportunities just fell in my lap. I didn't have to try. And I'd bump into people that offered me work. I got an editorship at a magazine. I was on the front row at Fashion Week, going to Paris, New York. It all just sort of came out of the air. So I really am quite philosophical about that and feel like that was part of my pathway. And I'm very much doing what I'm meant to be doing now. Right. So it, was, it wasn't that things just came to you. You found your place. You found your purpose. You found your superpowers. Yeah. And when you found your superpowers, yeah. when this experience caused you to find your superpowers, of course, you now were able to serve where you were supposed to serve, the way God made you to serve, right? Right. So let's, I want, I want to, before, before I, uh, I turn you over to Matt, I, I do want to focus on that moment where you're looking in the mirror and you're looking at yourself.
And one of the things that we've learned here at Tech Bootcamp is that in order to be able to feel good, I'm sorry, feel good, you often need to look good, right? And help yourself to look good. And you've always had this passion you shared with us for helping other people feel good by looking good, right? And how sometimes you have to hear from the outside in, which is one of the things we learned from another one of our guests in the, in, in the past where she had to look good. She was losing her hair and she went through this process, her name is Mallory Green, of making sure that she looked good so she could feel good and healing on the outside in. So talk to us about that moment when you're looking in the mirror and you're seeing the shell of yourself and how important it was for you to heal from the outside in before you can then begin to start to help other people heal from the outside in? Well, I've always loved expressing myself in whatever way that may be, whether it is acting or music, dancing and fashion and makeup. And I believe very strongly, and I always have, that making an effort and feeling great on the outside and putting your, your best foot forward and your best face out to the world has such a direct impact on how your day goes and then consequently your week, your month, your life, um, because it impacts your confidence. And when you know that you're feeling good on the outside, it puts a spring in your step. You stand up a little bit taller. You know, you talk a bit more assertively and you, your smile is that much broader and it's magnetic. People, people read energy um, and your energy then is carried from the inside to the out. And if you're feeling a little bit low on the inside, there's nothing quicker. Um, and it works every single time. If you're a guy or a gal, you might have a different routine, but going and putting on your favorite outfit, spending a little bit of extra time with your skincare and your hair, putting your favorite pair of shoes on, whatever it is, showing yourself that little bit of extra self-love. Because I believe that the image that you're putting forwards to the outside world and to yourself, because you, we all look in the mirror several times a day, is a direct reflection of how we feel about ourselves, about our self-worth. So it can be a shortcut to increasing that and improving that. If we're feeling dreadful about us, we're hating ourselves. And I was very much in that place. I was angry with everyone. Um, putting some effort into my appearance and slowly turning it around was a great way to make steps to feel better. So one, one more piece I want to explore with you before we move on to your healing journey, and that is um, you, were, you were in the grief cycle, right? And, and unfortunately, um, as an actor, you had to consistently go through the grief cycle and you had to grieve your inability to get the parts that you believe that you were qualified for, but you didn't really like that, right? It was a part of that, that, it, that professional experience that caused you to think, maybe acting is not for me. Maybe there's a calling somewhere else. Talk to us about how you are now in the, a larger grief cycle and how you went through the process of first denying. Then you went through the, you went through the process of, 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 of being angry. Then you yeah. went through the process of ultimately bargaining and then accepting. So talk to us about the grief cycle and how that moment in the mirror got you through the end of the grief cycle so you could now create something new. Well, I was just feeling very, very sorry for myself. And it was all about, I mean, I was so angry at my husband, actually. That was one of the people I, that really got it in the neck for me for a while. And, and bless him, he, he was feeling pretty awful anyway, because he was behind the, the wheel of the car. 
I, I remember throwing the remote control at him one evening um, in our living room. I was just, but I, I wasn't myself. I was taking all these drugs as well. So my mood and my hormones and everything, my body was just being bombarded from all angles. And then, as I said, I, I hated the uh, the NHS here because I just felt like they'd let me down so badly. My foot had been set at the wrong angle, which was then causing me more issues and just so many things were going wrong. Um, and I was just allowing the world to slip by and, and the drugs were absolutely my friend, as were custard donuts and coffee. It was like <laughs> I was living off the Holy Trinity for a while and my friends were great. They'd come and keep me company. But I, I let my husband carry the can um, because I was just busy feeling sorry for myself. And he he was he's an entrepreneur and he was actually dealing with some huge company issues at that time he was having his own work crisis that i didn't pay any attention to whatsoever or give him any credit for he was we'd actually had some family issues with my family and we'd sort of separated or become estranged from them so we had and his parents were in spain so he was doing everything on his own with two young children holding down a job which was very very challenging at the time and looking after me um, so part of that moment of looking in the mirror and deciding that I had a choice at that moment, because we always have a choice, don't we? And I, I have, thank God, whoever it was that spoke to me, whether it was God, the angels, my higher self, whatever you want to believe, but thank goodness I came to my senses at that moment and remembered that I did have a choice and my choice actually was to fight. And I found and reconnected with my inner grit and my willpower. And it certainly wasn't an easy recovery. And I can tell you all about that shortly, but I did start to fight. And once I found that fighting spirit, it was simply a question of putting one day, one foot in front of the other. And it was a bumpy ride, but wow, am I stronger for it. Miranda, I feel like that's something that's hard for many of us to accept, including myself, especially early on when I was diagnosed with Lyme disease, that we have the power. We have control to feel better because we want to blame other people. We want to blame the doctors for failing us, which, you know, in many cases they did. We want to blame, you know, the, the, the medical community for not knowing enough about Lyme and not having better treatments for us and not being able to detect, detect it earlier, which is probably all true. But when it comes down to it, we have the power to fight and take one of many steps to try to heal, which is exactly what you did, right? And when I'm taking the zoomed out look at your story so far, it almost seems like you had all the cards stacked against you to get a Lyme diagnosis because you had a car accident, which they then attribute all of your symptoms to the car accident. You now are taking a ton of medications and they're getting you addicted to pain medications. Now they're saying, oh, all your symptoms and are could be tied to side effects of this medication she's taking. You're a young mom. Oh, you're just a stressed mom. You had every they they could give you every excuse in the book to write off your symptoms, but you chose to fight, which is which is so powerful about your story. So walk us through what was the time frame between the time you had the car accident up until the time you finally got your Lyme diagnosis? It was probably two years. Um, it took me job, job number one was getting clean off all the painkillers. So I had to have the operations and things all out of the way. I had multiple operations on my foot sort of months apart. Um, the final ones being on the nerves, which was the final piece of the jigsaw really. Um, and then there, and I, during that time was slowly detoxing from the cocktail that I had become. I mean, I was carrying around a suitcase of drugs with me whenever I went, it was, it was not good. 
Um, and I became so angry with, you know, pharmaceutical companies in the NHS and everything full stop that actually during that time, I decided um, that I was going to go and study naturopathy here in the UK because it was all about, I'd always been into um, healing. I'm actually a Reiki master I and crystals and stuff like that. So alternative types of things, if you like. So this just seemed to be, well, it just seemed to pop up because I was, once I decided to fight, I threw everything at it. So this was to get clean and, and stronger from my car accident at the time. I didn't realize there was obviously a bigger picture of Lyme. So I tried everything from uh, Reiki, Bowen therapy, um, actually quite key. Something was hyperbaric, oxygen hyperbaric therapy, which actually I'll come back to because I'm now doing that for my Lyme, which is great. Um, I did uh, nutrition, I did uh, acupuncture, Chinese medicine. I mean, I was doing everything that I could. I was probably doing far too much all in one go, but you know, that's hindsight for you. But my attitude was fighting. And I found that I was making way more progress with all these complementary therapies than I, than I was by following the guidance from my doctors, which was to sort of, you know, keep taking these drugs and carry on and potentially have well, first of all, it was an amputation, then it was an ankle fusion, then they wanted to cut my Achilles. And I'm so glad I didn't take any of that advice because what would I be doing right now? I'd be in such a different place. Um, so I stuck to it. But I was so inspired by the natural world and the natural therapies I was discovering that I decided I'd love to go and study it. Um, so naturopathy, it was naturopathic nutrition, specifically in London. And it was also a project that I could get involved with, with my recovery before I really went into the, uh, the fashion um, to get the knowledge. So I was sort of studying this and recovering at the same time. Um, and during this time, I was becoming more and more ill. Um, eating the healthiest I'd ever eaten and starting a detox process as I was learning about it. Um, I now know that you have to be super careful with detoxing because you can, if you start that process without the right support and systems in place, you can actually trigger a whole lot of issues that were underlying that your body might not be able to deal with. It's all about timing. It's so much more complex than just going on a fast or, you know, whatever you're going to do, a liver flush or something. Um, and I thought I had Crohn's disease at first. I was seeing a naturopathic doctor of my own and my, I can't actually remember what reading it was. Is it my C-reactive protein? There was something anyway. One of my markers in my gut was off the scale and I was having huge amounts of pain and issues. Um, and she said, I think you've got Crohn's. So that was that. I was just about to go and book my uh, scan at the doctors here to get that investigated, you know, but here we were, there was some resistance because we were going back down into the medical route, which is something that I was still, to be honest, quite passionately against. I still was harboring some anger, um, even though I was trying to deal with it from my car accident. So I didn't, I was really resisting that pathway. And um, in fact, so what then happened was I was taking my daughter to a local kinesiologist who was amazing. And just for various tweaks and things, because I've become quite passionate about holistic health, ha having learned about it. And he picked up the various typical sort of um, imbalances and deficiencies of the odd vitamin and things like that, all fine. But he picked up Lyme disease and took me aside afterward and said, look, I think you need to get this checked out. I've picked up Lyme. And knowing how, having studied it, all of a sudden at naturopathic college and learning about how devastating this was, my stomach absolutely lurched and I felt sick. Um, and I uh, got him to test me for it. 
it also came up positive, as did my son. So I was thinking, hang on a minute, (laughs) we need to take this seriously. Off I go back to the doctors, because that's always my first port of call, just with myself to begin with and say, you know, look, I, I please can we test for Lyme? And I was met with resistance. They didn't want to. The test here is very expensive, apparently. Um, and I also knew that, again, from my studies with naturopathy, that the test they use, and I um, forgive me, I don't know the type of test it is, but I know the test in the UK here is notorious for giving a false negative. So I knew that my chances, even though I, if I were to get tested, I probably wouldn't get an accurate result. But nevertheless, I managed to make enough of a fuss to get a test, which was done reluctantly. And then sure enough, I had a uh, a false negative or a negative result. So that was the book closed as far as they were, were concerned. Meanwhile, I was sort of looking at my daughter through new eyes and thinking, well, she needs more sleep and she's got some skin rashes and she's not quite right. You know, and my son is autistic very, very slightly, but there's, there's stuff going on here. I just felt very uneasy because everything I was learning about Lyme was utterly devastating and I knew how seriously it should be taken. But none of us had been bitten as far as I could recall. There was nothing going on. And I I was just getting sicker and sicker um, to the point where actually I didn't, I wasn't able to finish my course, um, the naturopathy course, because I was just too ill. And there were many symptoms. My, so that the, the gut was how it started. And then my skin again, my face, and I joke and called myself elephant woman, but my face had these great red wheels and sort of the whole of the side of my face would swell up um, puffiness all around my eyes. So I looked like I'd been, well, I had two black eyes. I'd been punched. It was all super, super swollen. All sorts of bizarre, weird things were happening to my body. And I remember feeling so out of control because it was like, hang on a minute, you know, what's going to be next? You're waking up every morning having no idea. Um what was going to be next. So I just I felt like I'd just unearthed this whole can of worms. Um, and I didn't quite know where it was starting from or or whatever. Obviously, I knew Lyme was now in the picture, but I knew that also the accident was a factor, as was all the, the trauma and the medication that I'd been taking. And it was a very muddy picture. I'd probably mucked my gut up further by taking all that medication. Although I don't think my gut was ever fantastic, actually, looking back at my what I used to eat as a kid. And we had no idea. I was liberally pouring the sugar on the Weetabix every morning and, you know, eating cookies and cakes as, as to my heart's content when had no concept of what that might be doing to me. Um, so I was left with a real mess. And I had to, before um, sort of the fashion thing happened, I really had to try and get myself cleaned up and um, I, I spent quite a long time just at home, so many days and weeks in bed. And it was a bit of a roller coaster. It would, I'd have bad times and better times. And there were times um, where I was able to function, you know, at let's say 60, 70%. And then the next week I'd be, it would be something else and I'd be in bed again. And I remember the one thing I remember so clearly, and I think that I can empathize so much with other sufferers out there of of any chronic illness is that you feel like an imposter because if we have a broken leg or we've got blooming cancer or something like that everyone knows and can see physically what it's wrong with you and also they understand it's like yes I know I can put that in that box I can put that in that box I know I know what that is but I'd had the medics I was still around were sort of banding around ME and chronic fatigue and this that and the other but that was still very wishy-washy. Um, 
and no one really knew what to expect. And I'd sort of sit up in bed and some mornings and think, well, I think I feel okay. You know, I'm sitting up, I've made it up, I've had a glass of water and a cup of coffee or whatever. Okay, I think I can do this today. And I'd, I'd get up out of bed and start doing something and I'd get down the stairs and I'd have palpitations, I'd, I'd feel dizzy, um, or I just had this awful sort of toxic, achy feeling throughout my whole body that just felt like I was poisoned. There were all sorts of things, <laughs> you name it, I think I had it really. Um, so I just, I, I, it was very hard to talk to anyone about. And I felt, I started to feel very ashamed of it because, you know, you just think, come on, you're making a fuss over nothing here. It, it's just... I didn't really feel validated. People didn't really understand. Um, and, it, you know, it was a really tough time and I was panicking a lot about the kids. So just to circle back about diagnosis, what we did in the end, my lovely kinesiologist said, look, you're better off sending your bloods to Germany. So that's what we did. We got a private phlebotomist and uh, sent them off to the Armin laboratories in Germany. And we had Lyme. We had all the co-infections. I, I was by far at the top of the scale. My son was right at the bottom of the scale. And Lily, my daughter, was somewhere in the middle. And I was very panicky about the kids because, um, well, they're my kids. You know, I'd, I'd already put them through enough with the car accident, really. I didn't want to throw this at them either. But they didn't seem too bad, just a bit sensitive. So I found a really great practitioner um, who gave me a lot of hope, a couple actually in the UK, because I think when it's something like that, even though I had lots of naturopathic knowledge and nutrition knowledge, it's much easier for someone else to manage your treatment and, and have a helicopter view of what's going on. And we started a whole program of all sorts of things. For a while, I was on a very, very strict nutritional protocol. Um, we did the Dr. Klinghart uh, method with, which I'm sure you'll be familiar with, which are all very well known, lots of tinctures so many tablets. Um, I remember we had a holiday booked and I mean, the children and I must've been on about, I don't know, 60 tablets a day or something all at different times, possibly even more. So I had some help at home because I was just starting to work again. And together we sat down at the kitchen table and pre-packaged all these tablets into, you know, six o'clock in the morning, 11 o'clock in the morning, 3 p.m., 6 p.m. before bed. And we just had this mountain in front of us. I was spending so much money. Um, and then I tried some mitochondrial therapy in tablet form, which definitely helped, I think, push me forwards a little bit. Um, and I learned that I had to eat like an angel uh, most of the time. Uh, I cut out uh, caffeine for a very long time and alcohol for a very long time and just tried to reduce all toxins in my life. Um, and slowly but surely, I started to get better and stronger. But I think similarly in this situation, there was equally a turning point with, my, with the Lyme in that there was a moment, I don't recall the specific moment, but there was a moment where I decided that I wasn't going to be a victim anymore and I wasn't going to let it rule me anymore. And I know, and I still, even having made that decision, I still have hard times now where it's, I have a little bit of a flare up and I won't be as strong as I would like to be, or I've done too much. And my body's just going, nope, <laughs> you've forgotten to look after yourself, haven't you? Time to go to bed. Let's just take it easy for a few days, you know, and I know, but I'm much better at managing that these days, but I still have to be careful. But I did 
take a conscious decision that I was going to associate it with it less because there was a period of time where it just took over my whole life and it was all I could think about. And I was just, you know, I'm, I'm actually very spiritual and I, I, but whether I, I don't, whether anyone at listening in their homes right now, wherever they are listening to this podcast, whether you are or not, I think we can all agree that energy well, there is such a thing as energy. And I think when you're in the energy of the Lyme and you're just focusing on illness and you're telling yourself and reinforcing that by your actions every single day, you're just driving that further into your subconscious, your energetic fields, however you want to think about it. Um, But you were very much living in that sort of sickness bubble. So I did consciously think, I actually thought to myself, I'm bored. I'm so bored of this. But I think there was an element of of being ready to set it free as well. Um, and I'm sure there are people listening that are really sick right now thinking, well, you can say that, you know, you're so much better. And I really don't mean to upset anyone or get them more frustrated. Because I think if I'd heard that when I was in the thick of it, it would have made me really angry. And I so I hear you if you're feeling that right now, because I've been there myself. But I do think there's so much more to it than just the absolute straight up and down physical. I think it is. I think there's a large mental aspect. I'm not saying you're making it up if you're you're listening and you're you're really sick right now. Absolutely not. It's real. But you can choose how you process it and how you associate with it. Um, and I know that I had a lot of emotional stuff that I was holding on to. And I, I so believe that that has an impact. The emotions get sort of lodged, if you like, in your body. And if we don't release them and work through them, they can eat away at us in various different ways and make us sick. I mean, you only have to look at things like traditional Chinese medicine, which is so still so precious and so accurate because it hasn't been pillaged like so many of our other more Western uh, sort of healing methods from, from the past. Um, and they talk so much about... Out. For example, the liver is anger and frustration and um, the lungs are grief, et cetera, et cetera. And I really believe that, that there is a place for that in healing as well. I think it's so much more than just the physical. So I have since choosing to not associate with it or, or to want to leave it behind. Yes, I still have Lyme and yes, I still have uh, flare ups and issues and, you know, I actually thank it in a way because it reminds me to look after myself and my body will most definitely tell me when it's not happy. It speaks to me so clearly. I mean, right now I know my liver's not happy because I've got hives. They're lovely. Thankfully they're not on my face, but I know that it's not detoxing properly. So it, my body is telling me that it needs some help and it's, it's way more sensitive than than my husband's body, for example, he seems to be able to do whatever he likes to it and he's fine. (laughs) That's not fair. (laughs) But um, I'm thankful because it means that it gives me all the warning signs and I I know what to do to keep myself um, on the straight and narrow. I, um, in fact, something that I didn't mention was the hyperbaric oxygen therapy that I had from my ankle which actually fused my talus. So I'd broken my talus, which doesn't have its own blood supply. And I had a 99% chance of avascular necrosis, which is bone death. And all the doctors said, no, it's going to die. It's going to rot. Let's chop it off. 
Um, and luckily, my amazing husband did some research and found this weird thing that no one had heard of in the UK called hyperbaric oxygen therapy. This is 12 years ago and said, look, there's a really tiny chance that it might work. So we thought, well, everyone's going to think we're bonkers. All the, med- the medics did at the time. But off we went to my local MS centre, actually, where there was a tank and I did 20 sessions. And with the MS sufferers, for some of them, it was making the difference between walking unaided and being in a wheelchair. I mean, it was a miraculous difference. So we were so inspired, especially after it healed my talus, which had been given a 99% chance of dying and crumbling and rotting. Um, But my amazing entrepreneurial husband said, right, when the time comes, if I can, I want to make this more accessible because it's still not really very accessible in the UK. So we've since um, opened up our own hyperbaric therapy centre in uh, the High Street in Winchester, our local town in Hampshire in the UK. It's called HyBot. I'll give it a plug now, H-Y-B-O-2. And we're making it affordable and accessible for everyone, you know, walking in off the high street. And actually, it's proving amazing for long COVID right now. But I'm treating myself for Lyme. So I, I have regular hyperbaric oxygen therapy sessions and I have an infrared sauna here at home, which I love. Um, and one thing I've learned, if anyone listening is looking in, into doing this kind of thing or they're doing it and feeling worse, and this is all through experience and talking to different people and different experts, is that when we do these kind of things, they do kill off the bugs, they, which is great. The spirochetes hate them and um you know, they definitely do die because they're anaerobic. So the oxygen under pressure and the hyperbaric gets into all the tiny, tiny places that uh, that the, the bugs like to lurk in and kills them. But of course, when they die, because they're stubborn little so-and-sos, they release toxins, endotoxins, which are poisonous to us. And if we're Lyme, we have Lyme, then we're probably compromised in terms of our detoxification systems. I know that I don't methylate, so my liver pathways um, aren't as hot as they could be. All these things, all these paths I've gone down. So I've learned that if I do this, I need to soak up to take something to mitigate the effects of all the toxins that are then produced in my system. So I take a binder, a um, multi-spectrum binder to make sure that we're hopefully mopping up as many of them as we can. And I have well, to keep Miranda, what binder are yeah. you taking? Cause there's so many binders out there. I knew you were going to ask me that. I think it's pure encapsulations. I can go and check in a moment if you like. <laughs> I'm a huge fan of the the quick. In fact, I think it is. It's Quicksilver. I love the Quicksilver um, products. I think they're amazing, and I've got a fantastic holistic dentist that I chat with and who hooks me up with them. So that's where I get them from. I just want to focus on that because so many people tell us I did hyperbaric oxygen therapy. I did it in Fred sauna. I've done these therapies and I feel worse. So it can't be helping, but I think you just pointed out in a very clear and concise way why that is. When you kill off a large amount of pathogens, be it Lyme bacteria or other things in your body, like using oxygen with hyperbaric oxygen therapy, <clears throat> these, these pathogens will, will excrete toxins and now your body becomes toxic. And if you can't flush the toxins out of your body, you're going to get even sicker, but you're actually killing off pathogens, which is good but you're not flushing them out of your body, which is bad. So you have to find a way to flush them using binders or things like that. So when people say it didn't help, it made me worse. Well, it helped kill the pathogens, but you need to look at, look at your, your drainage pathways and your liver and detox, because that's the missing link for you to be able to get rid of these toxins in your body. And we've seen a lot of people do things like this, give up and say, nothing can help me and I'm going to be sick forever, but they're just missing the the detox piece of it. Right. So I think it's a really important message you gave us there, Miranda, for our listeners. So thank you for that piece. My pleasure. I think you're absolutely right. And I think 
you know, probably my main takeaway from learning about uh, naturopathic medicine is that you can't just treat one aspect of the body. So if you are, you know, whatever you're doing, if you're looking at the liver or if you're looking at, well, just killing the bugs with, with the hyperbaric oxygen, for example, you need to check that everything else is working because nothing works on its own. So liver function is obviously very, very key because it filters the blood and it does so much and it is our detox. Um, or our main detox, but the gut is also hugely, hugely important to look at. And if we have, um, you know, gut issues, a a leaky gut or whatever, then it's going to cause so many problems time and time again. So you do have to sort of check everything, which can feel so overwhelming. And I've been there. I mean, I had, we all have parasites and, you know, Lyme is is a type of parasite and we are surrounded with them the whole time, particularly if we live um, in the country. And I think one of the issues in the world, if you like, with health or in the Western world is that we've over sanitized everything. Um, So actually our natural defenses have been uh, beaten down, you know, with all the hand sanitizer we've had recently and uh, the antibacterial sprays and things. We need the natural bugs that we have to protect us and give us natural immunity from the other bugs. Um, and, And I know that with my own gut, I mean, there was a time I was into parasite testing and it's almost like you don't want to start. Once you start, you really just don't want to know what you've got. I had liver flukes. I had SIBO. I had Giardia twice. I had some very exotic and quite long worm, <laughs> just all sorts of things. And I hadn't been anywhere where there was Giardia. Um, but I think if you get out of balance in your gut, you know, all of a sudden you are the best hotel in the area for anything that's going and always loving animals. You are coming more into contact with these types of things. But I remember the doctors couldn't believe I had Giardia and hadn't been to sort of Egypt or one of the hotspots recently. Um, So there is so- How did you treat those parasites and your GI related symptoms that you had? What what did you do specifically? Was it the Klinghardt protocol or were you using some other herbal solutions? How did you treat that to get your gut in a better place than it was before? I have to say my gut's not perfect at the moment. And um, I think SIBO is one of the harder ones to get because, you know, of the, of the where the location is, obviously. Um, I've done a variety of things and I'm just going to try and remember for you because it's been over the years and I'm drawing a little bit of a blank. So bear with me one moment where I just rack my brains. Um <sighs> Were they natural or were they pharmaceutical? Because yeah, there, no, it wasn't so many pharmace- Yeah, no, it wasn't pharmaceutical. So it was natural. I did do a pulling heart protocol, but I did. Oh no, I did. I took like. Sorry, I've done so much, and, and I do get I do get brain fog as well, which is obviously <laughs> part of the line thing. So sometimes, if I'm a bit hazy, you're in good company there, Miranda. <laughs> <laughs> and I still have a lot of. Um, uh structural issues so my head the occipital bones of my head go out and my jaw moves in and out and things like that and then that puts pressure on the brain and then it doesn't drain properly and blah 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 but you know what I'm gonna live with it because I don't want to it's you know I don't want to walk around sort of waving a flag and saying oh poor me I've got Lyme there are people so much worse off and I'm so much better than I was but it's just about not kind of going down that rabbit hole too much but I took artemisia I took wormwood um, silver I was taking. So all sorts of natural naturopathic programs yes. under a practitioner, because it was much better, I think, rather than trying to treat yourself. Yeah. So you, I know you also did ozone. You did, I believe, uh, blood ozone yeah. and rectal ozone. Talk to us if you think that was a, a worthwhile tool in your healing journey for our listeners. Yeah, I did. You're right. I'd forgotten about that. I've done so much. Um, yes, I think the ozone helped. I remember feeling uh, I kind of crashed for the first few times and 
you know whatever you do it's good you have to de- have to see how strong sorry my cat's just joined me <laughs> that's okay welcome <laughs> Talking, yeah this is Penelope who was 26 who just um she just has to be part of the party Aww. um <laughs> so I wasn't in a, a particularly strong place when I started that sorry I, I will look into the microphone now so you can hear me better I wasn't <laughs> in a particularly strong place when I started that process so there was the element of getting sicker first. And I think that's the one thing to remember is before you go gung-ho, all guns blazing with any kind of treatment, you've really got to work out, probably with some help, what your body can cope with. Um, and very often it's it has the gentler, the better. Um, yes. just to do things really, really slowly. Otherwise you're opening the floodgates and you're not ready for that. So you have to be, and there's a, also an optimum order to do things in. I think the gut and the liver are two of the first things you've got to really work on. Um, so I would recommend, I think the ozone did help me. Yes. And I've done it. I've had several, um, courses of that. I think I've had three or four, the blood rectal. I'm not so sure. Um, I did it just to sort of make sure that anything that was lurking up up that end parasite wise was, you know, out of the way. Um, I also tried. did I put this down? I tried fecal transplant for a while. Oh no, we didn't know that. So we're, and this sounds creepy, but we're fascinated by that topic because, I mean, your gut microbiome is huge. And when you do a fecal implant and you're replenishing, you know, your microbiome essentially with, with good and bad flora that helps your body behave normally. Right. And when you're sick, when you have antibiotics, when you take drugs over time, you know, life, life circumstances can totally throw your microbiome off balance and you can have an imbalance of micro, micro, you know, a flora, meaning you have, you have more bad bacteria than good bacteria in your gut. And that throws you off balance, but a fecal implant can help reset that or restabilize that. And we actually had one guest, um, John Tubbs, who had great success with the fecal implant and it really helped him with his gut health and also primed him and optimized him for healing from Lyme disease. So what, what were your thoughts on that and how did it help you specifically with the fecal implants? I have to say, um, I'm pretty game for most things. I've, I've drunk all sorts of the most disgusting concoctions you can ever imagine. And, um, but that it was, I tried it four times. Um, I could, and I couldn't do it anymore. It was just one step too far for me. <laughs> I get so, that. That would yeah, be hard for me as well. It was super hard. I mean, I, you know, colonics, fine. Fecal implant. I just, I don't want to go into any detail here, so I'm not going to, but yeah, it just, but it, it, just is, what it's, it is what it sounds like. It's literally a fecal implant from another human being into, into your colon, essentially. Correct. Yeah. And you know what? There were people doing it and I know it's been amazing for them. Um, I believe the samples were donated by local firemen. Apparently they're healthy. That's great. Um, and if I was more desperate, I'm sure I would have followed that through, but, but that really probably was just part of my picture and not necessarily my main priority. And I just had to, I think actually you just had to weigh it up. Um, so it wasn't something I pursued. And I do want to talk to you about your hypermobility because, uh, you know, you are our 265th podcast guest. And so many of them have talked to us about having airless download syndrome and hypermobility and, is- you know, issues where their joints pop in and out and they're, and they're uber flexible. And, you know, they just have this fluidity with their bones and their joints and their muscles. So there seems to be a real connection between Lyme disease, specifically chronic Lyme disease and this hypermobility. So have you ever put any thought into there's, if there's a connection between the two that hypermobility makes you more susceptible to Lyme or vice versa? Oh, good question. 
I don't know if it makes you more susceptible. I, I'd always thought of it as the other way around. So it was due to the line that I was so hypermobile. Um, I know they love the synovial fluid and they munch away on the hyaluronic acid and, you know, collagen and all that kind of stuff. So yum, yum, yum for the spirochetes. Um, and again, it's kind of something that I've always suffered with. But what's interesting is my mother um, has is very, very hunched over. She's got scoliosis and has sort of slowly that's got worse and worse. But she's always had terrible back issues. And to be honest, one of my theories is that I, I caught it from my mum and have congenital Lyme. Um, which again, I mean, I mean, that's been laughed at literally. Well, it's actually very plausible. And and here in the States, at least it's become common knowledge where Lyme can be passed from mother to daughter or mother to son. It's more so the sexual transmission of Lyme being debated more now here in the States and congenital Lyme. Congenital Lyme has been pretty well established here. So Mm. it's something that we think is, you know, very possible in your situation. And if that were the case, maybe your hypermobility issues when you were a child were due to dormant Lyme and you didn't even know what was going on, right? Maybe there's a connection there that you were born with possibly. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Another area that's been affected is my bladder, um, needing the loo an awful lot and just, you know, going for a pee. And then two minutes later, needing another pee, you know, I mean, I won't try to go into all the details, but. <laughs> no, but that's very common too on this podcast. Yeah. I can't tell you how many people, I mean, probably, probably close to hundred people have said they've had, you know, these bladder issues where they pee frequently. And I look, I had it as well. It's gotten better, but there were times where I'd pee every 10 minutes. I'm like, what is wrong with me? But it's a very common you know, I guess byproduct or symptom of Lyme disease. And it's so it's something that people don't really make the connection with, but it's it's related for sure. Yeah, that's right. And it's obviously very hard to get to the bladder. Um, something that's really helped me with that, and it's actually really simple. So I'm going to share it, is um, you know, we can drink loads of water, but often if we don't actually absorb that water for whatever reason our bodies aren't absorbing it, then we are actually getting more and more dehydrated, which obviously is not helping. And I'd forgotten this. And then I came back to it recently and it's made the biggest difference um, with my bladder is I've just started to salt my water again, yes. which is something that I learned um, while studying as a naturopath. And I use the gray French sea salt, which is a really great blend of minerals, just like we have, you know, it's very close to how we are made up. Um, so it's ideal for human consumption. And I have at least a large glass of that first thing in the morning and last thing at night. And that has made a dramatic uh, improvement to my bladder. So I'm I'm so thankful. So I think it could have also been a mineral imbalance. But of course, you know, the lime is going to make you more likely to have these imbalances anyway. So it is all part of the picture, but it's such an easy thing we can all try. It's definitely worth a go. And that's a huge tip, right? I mean, because I, I can relate to that personally, where if I'm not eating enough salty foods or drinking, you know, or getting salt in, in some sort of fluid, if I'm drinking water, it's coming right through me, right? So mm-hmm. I'm probably still dehydrated, it's coming right out. But if I'm drink, if I'm drinking water with salt or if I'm having salty foods, I can drink less water and yet I'm 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 not dehydrated because the salt is, is allowing me, I think, to process the water better. And I never really thought about that much until you just said it, but it's such a common thing that I see in my own experience as well. So thank you for that tip. I think a lot of people listening are gonna benefit greatly from that. Oh no, my pleasure. And something else that I've I've really learned. I mean, thank God, it's, this is a massive, massive topic, isn't it? But it's where do you stop with wellness? But um, EMF is um, something that I'm definitely sensitive to. And even though I'm not a natural camper, 
I like my luxuries and I have a luxury brand and deal with designers and all the rest of it. That's my world. However, when I am persuaded to go camping, my body loves it because we're just in the middle of a field and there's no Wi-Fi or anything like that. So to mitigate that these days, what I do as often as I can, um, and it's much easier in the summer, is to earth or ground. So barefoot on the grass, a minimum of 15 minutes a day. Um, and I actually have a little earthing card um, and you can get these from various companies that I have on me. There's various ways of sort of cheating it when you can't get outside. But the best is definitely making contact with your skin um, on the earth or even better in the sea or a lake or something like that. Um, and that's really great for helping reset the body. I read recently that is that the single most anti-inflammatory action that we can take for our body, which is amazing, isn't it? And it's free. We've read a lot about grounding and, you know, even, even people that are really sick and possibly bed bound or homebound, even just sitting outside and getting sunshine, even sitting outside and getting the natural air is such an, a tool to help assist in your, in your healing, because it really is therapeutic. It's going to help your body heal. And it's so simple, but people don't really realize how helpful it can be to be out in nature or ground or be in, like you said, a, a local river or a lake and, it's, and how the therapeutic values of that. I do want to caution our listeners because some of them may know that Rich started grounding last summer. And of course, in the first week, Rich is a tick magnet, although he gets mad and he doesn't believe he is a tick uh, magnet. Rich <laughs> was bit by a tick while grounding last summer. So oh, if you no. are going to be grounding out in the earth, be, be sure to do tick checks and to wear preventative, uh, you know, to, to use tick, tick prevention sprays because there is uh, a risk there. And yeah. we do a tick bite blueprint on our website to check out if you are bit by a tick. But just be careful if you're going to be grounding because Rich was bit while grounding and he did love it. And he was having a great experience until he had this crazy anxiety attack when he got bit by a tick. So just a, a cautionary tale. Oh, yes. Oh my goodness. I was on, I was lucky enough to be on safari in South Africa in uh, February for my husband's 50th. And I was fine. We were doing a bush safari on foot. So walking through and I was totally fine until the ranger pointed out that on the top of all the grasses that we'd been literally brushing through were thousands of ticks just waiting to latch on. And apparently they can stay there for something. It was something incredible, like seven or eight years just waiting for a host. So all of a sudden, you know, he said, make sure you check yourself everywhere when you get back. So my husband and I had to just uh, double check and fortunately nothing happened, but I thought, you know what, I've got it anyway. They can't, <laughs> they can't get me. <laughs> so Mar- I do want to ask, I mean, look, you had, not only did you have Lyme and probably every cone, you said almost every co-infection in the book and your children had, had Lyme and co-infections. And you had the added stressor of this, this major car accident, which you had all kinds of structural damage to your body. You had a ton of surgeries. You had all this medication that you were addicted to and you had to come off of because of your doctors giving you all these pharmaceuticals. You had all these things stacked against you. Yet here you are today, 90% recovered from Lyme and, and just a happy, healthy individual. I mean, give us an idea of something you're doing today that you never dreamed of doing when you were at your worst. (laughs) Well, the reason I have to be a little bit quicker than we would like on this podcast is I'm shortly off to the airport to fly off to Greece. And um, yeah, for some sunshine, because it's not particularly consistent here in the UK at this time of year. But we have, um, it's a very long story, so I'll make it super quick. But we have become involved with the largest dog shelter in Greece as a family, because the stray dog population is horrendous and the torture and abuse issues are very, very bad. So we've adopted several Greek dogs ourselves. We facilitate Greek dog adoptions all over the world. And when we go out there regularly and raise money and I campaign through social media and with my celebrity friends to raise awareness of the issues out there. So that is something that I am looking forward to. 
So Miranda, oh, first of all, I forgot to wish you a happy birthday. You uh, you recently celebrated a birthday, so uh, happy birthday! Thank uh, you. And um and 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 it, this is a perfect transition to the you know the sort of the last part of our podcast, which is the journey of transformation. You've had this beautiful journey of of achievement, but now you also have this journey of transformation where you went through a a personal transformation where you had to change your relationship with your with your family. You went through this professional transformation where you pivoted away from acting to becoming someone who, interestingly, is still in the acting world, but not serving as an actress herself. Although I have to tell you, your, your social media is just fantastic and your capacity <laughs> to act in, you know, in, in the pieces you post on the social media is just brilliant. So thank you. Um, it really is enjoyable to watch you display those talents as well. Uh, but now we have this, this, this sort of um, calling to serve the world, right? I mean, you went from being literally wheelchair bound to now getting ready to go on a plane and travel to Greece to serve the community in a way that you never would have dreamed you were serving. So talk to us about that call, you know, first how you discovered that important element of your life and how you're being called to both serve um, um, this, this community of, of, of suffering animals, as well as the community of people in the Lyme community that you're also serving now as, as one of the, one of the um, leading advocates for. Okay, well, I think I, I actually feel really privileged and really blessed and really lucky. I'm very grateful for my journey. I know it has been one hell of a journey and, and there's sort of more you know we don't have all day so there's, there's more almost that I could bring to the table in terms of trauma and upset in my life a, a big factor that we haven't delved into and perhaps is, is another time but um, becoming estranged from my family I, I have two um, very narcissistic parents and a, a sister who I love very much but I had to step away from this is all part of the healing journey because social um, detoxing yeah I, I, it was incredibly painful to do because you feel guilty and you feel very torn and it brings up all sorts of emotions, but I simply had to do it um, for my own mental health. And I tried several times to sort of um, make amends and improve things. But every time I had confirmation that I was actually doing the right thing by putting some space between us all. So it is very sad, but I've reconciled myself to it. Um, well, yeah. I feel Marina, let's, let's pause there for a second because we interviewed Crystal Hefner, the, um, the uh, former wife of, of the Playboy um, um, Playboy um, guru. And mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that she shared with us was that she would not have been able to heal from Lyme disease had she not gone on a social detox. If she mm -hmm. didn't take the people out of her life who are creating, you know, this toxic environment. So you talked a little bit earlier um, in this podcast about the importance of physically detoxing, but just as important, of course, as socially detoxing, because if yeah. you're not in a healthy place and you're with all of these toxins in your social environment, you're not going to heal either. Mm -hmm. uh, you're right. And you just come to this slowly, but surely. And I think something sort of pre my transformation is that I had always been a people pleaser. Um, and I would always say, yes, I wouldn't really have any boundaries. In fact, that was something that came from my childhood because I didn't really, I wasn't able to have my own boundaries much as a child. So I was never fully kind of imbalanced and in charge of my own well-being and happiness in that way. I wasn't taking control. I was very much reactive rather than proactive with all of that and socially too. 
And I definitely had low self-esteem and confidence issues and self-love issues, all of that stuff, because I actually had quite a difficult childhood in places because of my, my parenting. Um, and it's something that as I've grown stronger, and I think I've grown stronger primarily through learning to stand up for myself and take charge of my own health and well-being on a physical front first. And I've proven that to myself time and time again because I've had a few a few issues with car accidents and goodness knows what lots of problems with the Lyme and then also having actually built a, a very respectable career um, that I love even having had such a tough time and you know not not the best sort of launch pad but despite all of it, that I've done very well in a very short space of time and I feel again I mean, I, I am so lucky every day. I look out. I live in a beautiful part of Hampshire. We live in a gorgeous house. I love what I do. I love, I do love serving people actually, because I feel like it is a calling. And I've, to be honest, I've always felt like there has been a calling for me, but I just haven't quite work, been able to work out what that is. And it's only through going through all these experiences of suffering that it's helped me work it out. Um, and I, I think because I've been through so much and I really have, and being an emotional Piscean and an, an ex-actress, you know, I'm, I'm really in, um, in connection with those feelings and I really know and own them. So when someone else is going through something, I can, I can so empathize. I know where they're at and I can put myself right back to where I was at that's sort of in, in common with that person at that place at the time. So I really want to help to inspire people to feel better and to heal them by sharing my own experiences, whether it is with the, the physical healing journey with a car accident, the Lyme, or stepping away from my parents, which was, you know, very, very traumatic. And I, I still, I think, have a little bit to work through with that. Um, well, Miranda, I, I think one of the things we have to also keep in mind with your parents is it's very likely your mom was suffering from Lyme disease. Yes. It's very likely that it is untreated. And, you know, one of the things we see in the Lyme community all the time, especially with some of the Lyme groups, is that people who, who are in pain often lash out at the other people. People who are yeah. suffering often cause suffering for other people, right? Hurting people, hurting people is one of the terms yes. that we see in the Lyme community, right? So, uh, you know, one of the things I think we have to learn about ourselves when we're going on a healing journey is sometimes being in a social environment with people who are hurting themselves are, is mm -hmm. not a good place for us to be because mm -hmm. sometimes they just can't help it themselves. And that's why they may be, you know, they may be um, hurting us because they're hurting. Yeah, you're right. They're both very unhappy. I know that they have been for my whole life. And I think I've spent my whole life trying to make them happy. But what I've recently realized is that I can't do that for them. They have to find that themselves. And I'm not going to be a scapegoat for it anymore or, or anything else. I have to take charge now of my own boundaries. Good for you. Um, yeah. And you know what, as well, it's a common, another common saying is that we're the average of the five people we spend the most time with. So I'm choosing who I want to be around because I want to reflect all that beautiful energy and all those good vibes back on me. So I've really consciously taken control of my life and where I'm going now. Right. You're living much more intentionally. You're more intentional about how you live your life physically, how you live your life emotionally, how you live your life socially. And these are the important lessons that you've learned, which have now put you in a position where this transformation that you've gone through physically, emotionally, spiritually, socially, has now put you in a position where you can now help others. So talk mm -hmm. to us about this, um, this um, challenge in Greece and how you were called to help 
the uh, you know the suffering animals in Greece, which is a another country a long distance away from where you live. How how did how did you how did you feel that call, and and why did you decide to answer that call in particular? Well, it all started with a little puppy on the beach. We went for an innocent family holiday um, to a hotel. I don't know, about five years ago in Greece. And there was a pack of stray dogs there that were wandering into the restaurant in the hotel at night because they were starving and quite obviously starving and not in very good condition. And the hotel staff were just shooing them out because some of the, the guests were understandably uncomfortable with it with young children. But I've always been an animal lover, um, often prefer animals to people, if I'm perfectly honest, got a whole load myself. And uh, <laughs> I'm sure many people can relate to that one. Um, I can. <laughs> so I was I was concerned and uh, um, my poor husband went along with it when I, I said, right, well, the, the least we can do is feed these animals. So I would steal sausages and boiled eggs from the breakfast bar every morning and then go down to the beach and, you know, keep these animals going. Um, and I noticed there was one tiny puppy who had two broken legs, was covered in mange and was physically trembling. She had a mum, luckily, who she was clinging to, but I couldn't get her to eat because she wouldn't come near enough to the hotel. And even if I was throwing food at her, she'd run away in the opposite direction. So I thought, oh, you know, what can I do? So um, I was very uneasy and there were rumours going around the hotel about dogs being very badly treated. And I just thought something's wrong and, you know, I'm going to try and do something about it. So I managed to find there was a local dog shelter to the hotel sort of 16 kilometers away which I thought was incredibly fortuitous so I phoned them up and managed to get through and they said you're having a laugh there's no way we can take seven more dogs in we've already got several hundred we have no food um you're just at the tip of the iceberg the problems here in Greece are terrible it's not the stray dogs it's the animal abuse it's even worse proceeded to tell me a whole load of really bad stories that I won't repeat on here but you imagine it it's happened and 10 times worse and it's regular um, in rural areas mostly, but it, it really is quite horrific. Makes me very angry, getting cross just thinking about it. Um, so go back to Justin, my lovely husband, and we say, look, we're going to give you a load of money for you to sort these dogs out because we can't leave the country with these dogs, particularly this puppy in the state she's in. She's tiny and she's going to die. Um, and we'd actually found that her siblings had been had been clubbed to death on the beach the previous week. So that's why she wasn't even coming anywhere near us. I mean, the poor thing was so traumatized. And I was on a real mission then. And when, when a woman gets on a mission, you've got to get out of her way, right? So I, I was on a full-on mission. So um, they reluctantly agreed. We went up to get some horse tranquilizer, as you do in Greece, to put in some sausage to um, get the puppy sleepy so I could capture her and, and get the others and get them up to the shelter. But in typical Greek uh, mistranslation and disorganization, some volunteers went down to the hotel while we were at the shelter to collect the puppy. So just, you know, <laughs> badly organized. And, in, and while we were at the shelter, turned back up to the shelter triumphantly with the mother, but not the puppy. At which point I burst into tears because I thought the puppy could barely survive with the mum looking after her. If her mum had gone, how this thing must have been, you know, just so, so frightened. Oh, I've completely missed a whole bit out. Go, Just go back a little bit. I was The reason I decided to phone the dog shelter is the puppy was staying miles and miles away from the hotel and not coming into the restaurant. But one morning we were staying in a downstairs room. My husband said, oi, oi, we've got visitors. Come and have a look. And the mother and the baby were curled up on the deck chairs on our veranda. And I was so shocked and surprised because she wouldn't come anywhere near the hotel. And I actually felt like I was directly being asked for help at that moment. 
it was like, okay, you know, you win. I'm on a mission now. I really couldn't refuse. So they got the mum to go back to the shelter. We went back in, in, I was in floods of tears and so concerned, but on a mission to try and catch this, this dog, this little dog puppy tranquilize it in sausage we got up super early one morning it took me four hours on my stomach blogging it all on my social media because I have a following and people were following along and egging me on which was great because I needed the encouragement singing at nursery rhymes thinking I was David Attenborough or something and, and throwing bits of sausage at it but her adrenaline she was so nervous she was eating the sausage which was great but her adrenaline was overriding it so she'd look sleepy and be about to sort of pass out and then she'd get another and I was just literally thinking this is just not going to work. But I mean, you can't make this stuff up. I was just about to give up. And her mother walks up, gives her a lick. And then the little puppy, you know, cuddles her mum, flops down, falls asleep. I jump on her and put the lead, the lead over her, her neck. It turns out the mother had escaped and walked 16 kilometers from the dog shelter back to be with her baby just at the perfect moment for me to catch her. It was amazing. And then we got to the shelter. We realized, to be honest, the dogs probably weren't that much better off there because they had no food and many problems, no money, basically. It was run by this one wonderful woman, Katerina, who'd given up her whole life to the plight of the animals because it was just, it was just desperate, but was starving herself, had horrible living conditions. And my husband turned to me and said, we've got to do something about this amazing woman. I turned to him and said, we've got to do something about these amazing dogs. <laughs> so together we agreed that we would from our different aspects. He's an Aquarius, I'm a Pisces, and apparently it's a classic combination. And, um, and we used my social media at first to spread the word and raise money. And we got 10 adoptions organized that one holiday um, for some, some wonderful Greekies, gorgeous Greekies to go and, and have homes in the UK. And we're in touch with all of them. It's amazing. And now we go back several times a year. I'm going back tonight and we are going to be fundraising, getting more adoptions going on, filming all the new puppies because it's puppy season and campaigning um, to end the cruelty and the issues out there. Um, they have got somewhere, but we have a little way to go. That is a beautiful story. And, and yeah. we, we, we promised we would we would uh, we would end this podcast um within the next three minutes. So we're going to honor that commitment. <laughs> what we'd ask you to do, if you would, is please post us, uh, keep us, um, or tag us, I should say, yes. on, uh, on all of all of what you're posting so that we can reach out to folks in our community and encourage them to support you as well. Um, and maybe we can we can encourage others, uh, other leaders in the Lyme community to continue to support you in this effort. And uh, we can, um, you know, all together support you in this really beautiful endeavor. So Miranda, I, I can't thank you enough for uh, for sharing your beautiful story. We would really love to speak with you in the future, uh, yeah. perhaps doing a special episode on social detoxing, because I think that's a really powerful issue sure. that um, that we would love to talk more about. But again, I can't thank you enough for taking time to share your beautiful story with the Tick Bootcamp community. You are so welcome. I think you guys are amazing. That was the most organized and professional podcast I've ever done. Can I just say that? And I work with celebrities all the time on these. So fantastic, guys. And I just want to say to anyone listening out there, you know, if you're in that phase of feeling like everything is is against you and you're on the verge of giving up and you're really in the depths of despair, 
we have all well I have been there and often you're if you're really really at your lowest it means you're about to make that breakthrough because I think you have to reach your lowest point whatever that might be and often you can't believe how low it really can go but you have to get that low just in order to take that next step forward and suddenly see the light of the path ahead of you. So please just hold on. And if people want to reach out to me on social media and start a conversation, I would I would welcome that. It's at the Miranda Holder. I know you're going to tag me, but um, I know how you feel. And I and just from a feel good fashion coach perspective, I cannot encourage enough just spending a bit of extra time on your appearance and wearing things that make you look and feel good is a game changer and something that is fairly tangible and straightforward to do. So give that a whirl as well. Thank you for listening to the Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest, Miranda Holder. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Miranda Holder, please visit our Instagram page at the Miranda Holder. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share with your friends on social media. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick by Blueprint. It has been inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at tickbootcamp.com to view the blueprint. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. Fifth, if you'd like to search our podcast library of over 250 episodes for specific keywords, please visit tickbootcamp.com forward slash search. And finally, if you'd like to share your feedback with us, please use the contact form on our website at tickbootcamp.com. Thank you as always for listening.